So, Father, thank you for today. Um, this is a, 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 an amazing moment. Um, there's nothing like this, Lord, um, to hear again your embodied love, your, your love that came in, in real form, in real life, and came after our great need. So help me, Lord, to, to speak in such a way that this is not abstract, and it's, it's really right where we all live. Um, and so I thank you for today's text, and uh, help us, Lord, to, to be introduced once again to your, to your love. Help us to connect with you. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so, uh, Lenya, this feels a little bit, a little bit hot, but just, uh, anyway. All right, how are you doing today? Are you doing all right? Give me a couple thumbs up. Everybody all right? Okay, good deal. Um, um, okay, so we are going to take one more look at Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Um, and uh, before we depart from this particular text, uh, you can tell it's a favorite of mine. I'm sure it's a favorite of Nathaniel's. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of, of the gospel. And uh, let me just say with you, the apex of our salvation is, is the concept of sonship. It's the concept of adoption. So Galatians has a lot of legal language in it. Okay, so what's our relationship to the law of God? So it's like we're in a courtroom. Uh, and the Apostle Paul, in a very loving, loving way, transitions, does all that legal talk, and he's still doing it here in our passage, but he transitions to the relationship we now have with God, and it's much better than the, the previous relationship to God through the law. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on here. So it's the apex, it's the, the pinnacle of our salvation. So... Uh, the problem with Christians is that we don't dwell enough on this and we're not familiar with it. And uh, we will talk about the forgiveness of sins, and that's very important. We may talk about justification, and that's very important. Uh, but this idea of sonship, of being adopted, is somewhat neglected in our day. Um, so I want to talk to you about uh, a couple of different topics this morning. First, I want to talk to you about the... Uh, how you're going through your life, how you're uh, managing your life, and the sort of the input you're receiving from others and from your world. Um, and I want to interact with uh, our text today on that. And then I want to talk about the input you're receiving from yourself, the, the messages that you send to yourself. Um, and uh, so let me give you a little bit about my life. And sometimes I like to just give you a little bit background to who I am, how I got here, and that sort of thing. And I won't take too long on this, but um, I'm from Southern California, and I'm the youngest of five kids, uh, and um, we do have uh, Becky's family here from Maine, and uh, half of my, my father's side comes from Maine, Eastport, Maine, so you are my people, and uh, we got together here. My great-grandfather uh, owned some sardine factories in Eastport, Maine, and uh, so I've never been there. I've been as far north as Boston. Uh, it was the end of September. I was freezing. Marianne and I were there, and we got out of there as quickly as we could. So I didn't keep going. So, uh, and so I say all that to say that um, growing up, I was a, a Southern California suburban kid, uh, and we went to Grandma and Grandpa's house uh, regularly for, for holidays. And... Uh, Southern California is a big suburban sprawl, 
There's no difference between Pasadena and Alta Loma. There's no difference between Orange County and, you know, Pismo Beach. It's all just, it's all one big suburban sprawl. If you've ever seen it, uh, it's, if you, if you like that thing, if you like suburbs, then go to Southern California. Uh, so I say this to say that what was unique about my upbringing was that for, for uh, a part of my upbringing, I was visiting my grandparents, and they lived in uh, a place called Cucamonga. There really is a town called Cucamonga. Uh, now it's called Rancho Cucamonga. And uh, so my grandfather was an orange grower of about 60 acres of orange, orange groves, and uh, he was a rancher. And uh, his father was the owner of the uh, sardine factory in Maine, and he had a lot of money and lost a lot of money in Long Beach, California in 1905 uh, on an oil scam. <clears throat> so they bought this ranch just to stay in, and then my grandfather stayed there, and the rest of the family went back to Eastport, Maine. So I say all that to say, growing up as a kid, I'm really connected with my grandparents, and I would come to know their great love for me later in life. My grandmother uh, had just a great affection for me, and she was the first one who would teach me how to spell. And I remember I could not, I would get into, their, into the steps up to their porch, and then you could see the kitchen from there, and my grandmother would bake all these home-baked cookies and uh, bakery stuff, and her, her cream puffs were, you could see them from 20 feet away, and they were just just huge, and as a child, I was just drawn to them. I could feel their power, and and um, and she would stay right there, and she would have a list of spelling words for me, and I couldn't get past her, couldn't get, get, get to the cream puffs until I said these spelling words, you know. So she was the first one to teach me that the word knee had a silent K in it. You know, I thought that was just so strange, but she's there. So. I say all this to say that my connection to them and their house was big. Now, ask yourself, what are the symbols in your life that you remember as a child that make you feel, that feels like family, that feels close to you, where you feel warm, you feel connected to something from your childhood? And I say this to say that what I had was, as my grandparents passed away, what I really had was their, their house. And then when their house was sold, and it was actually out, it was sold and it didn't stay in the family, there were things in my grandfather's house that I wasn't there at the time, but my brother Jeff went, and we were all on the phone with him saying, well, get the pictures, get the sketches, get the artwork. And so my brother Jeff went all around in the basement and all around trying to find grandpa's sketches. Because my grandfather was uh, an artist who was actually uh, in that kind of Norman Rockwell era uh, where you didn't have photographers, but you had an artist do your picture for your magazine. So he went to the Boston Illustrator's School of Art in 1915. I have a picture of him downstairs in my office. So I say all this to say that my grandfather and my grandmother, I still want to have a connection with them. And one of the pictures that my brother was able to, and this was, by the way, by the trash can, almost ready to be thrown out. And it's, it's, this is not, uh, you know, going to end up in the Louvre, okay? So it's not, gonna, it's not a famous work of art. This is probably just a little sketch um, of two, two boys um, playing marbles. 
and you can come up and look at it closer later. But my point is that uh, my grandfather, the image that I'd have of him would be that he would be sketching out in the orange groves, um, just freehand with a piece of charcoal. And I can guarantee you he, did, he probably did that in an hour and a half or so. It's not a, it's, and he probably didn't think much of this, okay? But as kids growing up, this was, a big, this was a big deal. We loved it. So as you think about your life, think about the symbols of your life. Um, for me, it was not only this, but it was their, their very house. And I was so glad for the people of Cucamonga, the city fathers, who decided that my grandfather's ranch house was to be a historic home in Cucamonga. And so I drove by there one time in my 20s, and there was my grandfather's house, my grandparents' house. The the grapefruit tree was still out in front. And all around it, what used to be uh, eucalyptus groves and, uh, and, and orange trees were now suburban sprawl. And... Uh, but there was about a, maybe a quarter acre walled off, and it looked like the 1920s. Okay? It's right there. It's a beautiful moment, beautiful, beautiful part of Southern California history. Well, I was talking to my brother Jeff about five years ago, and Jeff said, oh, by the way, Grandpa's house is gone. I said, what? He said, yeah. I said, Jeff, are you sure? Did you go down Archibald and you make a left on Wabash? Are you sure you... Did you go... He goes, it's gone. I stood out in front of it. It's gone. And something inside me was like a tremor. You know, it was like, this can't be. This can't be real. You, you've taken away something vital to me and my life and my memories. And, this, and I felt this great sense of loss. It's gone. The, the home that my father built out in the desert when they were first married was, my father built our, the first house I lived in. I didn't remember it, but that house is gone as well. Uh, my parents are gone. My grandparents are gone. See? You see what's happening? So the question is, where, where do we go for the signal that we're still connected with something vital, purposeful, lasting. And I don't know how many of you, um, you see, for me, I had to process this idea of, you so my, I can't live in this past anymore. I have to actually, I have to mentally think about that. In other words, I have these beautiful memories, but it, I will not be able to bring my girls by uh, and Aubrey's new husband and, and to show them my, my grandfather's house. I, it's not going to be possible. I won't be able to go out in the desert and show them the house that my father built. These are very big symbols of my life. See? So I've got a couple of choices to make. See, What am I going to do? This is how the wor- it's, it's unfolded. The world has unfolded this way. Um, that memory of the 1920s in California, which I never knew about, but I had some sense of, is faded, has faded away. Do you feel this a bit in your life? Do you feel... Especially those of you who are in the military, you, you move a lot. How do you feel a connection to your past, where you are now? And, and how, are you, how are you processing all of this, this sense of being scattered? 
if we even take it even bigger, there are whole civilizations and there are whole nations that don't exist anymore. You take it into the corporate world, there are Fortune 500 companies that don't exist that were in, you know, in the, back in the 80s were the, were, the, were the big deal, and they don't exist. We're seeing just rapid changes going on. We're seeing a, a, it's a, a, the equilibrium that we would normally have is, is not with us. See? Particularly the connection with our fathers and mothers and family. And I recognize that the issue of the subject of fatherhood for more than a few of us here is, is it's not a good subject. Where there, there was a significant failure there and you are still to this day feeling it. And so when we have a text in Galatians 4, verses 6 and 7, that say we get to call God Father that has some significant challenges to us. And, uh, and so I want to start today with the outside world. And let's, let's explore this a little bit. How are you uh, processing the messages that you get from other people? Um, and let's take a look at some of those kinds of messages. Um, the negative input that you receive from other people. The negative input. Um, you probably experience it in some way uh, regularly. Um, this could be parents, siblings, other Christians, um, unbelievers. Um, this is sort of comments that people make, and uh, it could sound like this. You're not loving me. Um, you're not meeting my needs. Um, you're a failure. Um, you don't measure up. Maybe they don't quite say it this way, but you feel it. Basically, I reject you. Um, but then there's also a message. And the message, it could be from your work, or you're, you feel threatened. The message could be, well... But if you, if you improve, if you get it together and you work at it, then I'll, right? So there's a huge condition placed upon your performance, right? If you work at it. Um, What could be worse than that kind of pressure? Well, I think something else could be almost worse than that. The pressure you put on yourself. The inward dialogue that goes on that maybe other people don't hear. You actually agree with some of the things that were said about you. You've maybe wondered if they're true. Maybe you feel that those comments have some validity. Um, what's your instinctive reaction when you hear this negative input from other people? What, what do you do? Usually, as Christians, we get on our good works treadmill. Okay? 
A treadmill is where you get busy and you're going to burn some, burn some calories, right? You're going to get busy and improve yourself. Because where are you going to go? I mean, your performance has failed in some way or another. Maybe you agree with it, right? So what are, what are you going to do? So usually we get on a treadmill. I want you to look at Galatians 1, excuse me, Galatians 4, 1 through 7, and I want you to find one reference to our activity. Find one thing we are supposed to do. Notice how quiet the room is. Notice the active one is God who has made us sons and he has sent his spirit into us to assure us that that is our status and our privilege. Our privilege. What are you going to do when the negative input comes to you and you may even agree with it? What are you going to do? Christian, are you going to get busy in some self-improvement project? I teach a class on Thursday nights on Galatians. You'd be welcome to come. We get a little more in-depth than we do here on Sunday mornings, but this last Thursday night, there was just a beautiful moment where people began to process their treadmill activity. They began to see the gospel and its beauty and wonder. And during the break between the two hours that I teach, they kept talking about that subject. That means the heart is filled with wonder. The heart is filled with joy. The, the heart is feeling relief. The, the heart has take, taken a break from the treadmill and stepped off and begun to see what God has done for us. The negative input, how are we processing it from the outside? What are we doing inside of us? Do we really live in Galatians 4, 6, and 7. God has sent the spirit of his son into us whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You have a father in this moment who has loved you, accepted you, loved on you in such a way that you have now a, a status you could never achieve by your own performance. What is your instinctive reaction and this is the key moment. This is what you need to go, go home and work on. What, where do you really live? For instance, why did I tell those stories about my upbringing and my childhood? Because I live in those rich, warm moments from my childhood. I had a wonderful childhood. I had a dysfunctional family. <laughs> in the sense that if I really analyzed it, I go, yeah, we were kind of crazy. But I, my interpretation of it is good. Now that is a wonderful thing to go, to go through life with. I can call that to memory uh, you know, in seat 22E on United Airlines anytime I want to. I can bring back my childhood. And you know what? Sometimes I feel like my childhood is better than my moments right now. And that's why I like to go back there. But am I, is, is that actually really living, you see? Is that what I'm supposed to do right now in this moment? Is that what Jesus calls me to do, to live in the past? And the, the answer is no. 
There's aspects of it that's to give God praise for, but I'm actually to be released from it. To be released from it. You know that Galatians tells us that no one can be righteous by works. You know that. Galatians 3.3, if you have your Bibles. Galatians 3.21, no one will be justified by works. But in the pressure of the moment, your activity, your defenses, your excuses, your, uh, the way you instinctively respond to people who may be critical of you, the way you have figured out how to do this in the moment feels like what you ought to do. What you need to do in that moment is believe. It feels so weak. It feels so insignificant. You need to believe the gospel in that moment. We are called in the pressures of those moments or in the sadness of those moments or in the the deflating feeling of that moment. We are called to think like sons and to be empowered to think think like sons is the result of the Spirit of God in us working. Some of us are still playing those tapes, a critical comment from a father, a disappointment from a mother, a nonverbal that you saw as a child and it pierced your heart, a disappointment, something there. And we're afraid that, that that script is playing again in our life, in this moment, in these days. It's, it's happening again. And we feel that we've lost intimacy with what is meaningful. See, that's my fear as I get, as I realize that my experience is growing up. I don't even have a physical place to go see. I can't even show people what it was. It's gone. So the intimacy of my connection to that time, is, it feels like it's gone. And so when this text is talking to us about the intimacy of a cry of a child, it is a child who has a familiarity with God. It is a, it is a, a title that you wouldn't use of the, of the king of the universe. Uh... Imagine calling the, calling the emperor of China, daddy. <laughs> Anybody getting, getting that connection? Calling the king of the universe, the creator of all things, the great almighty, daddy. Is everybody understanding? This is what the idea is. You have, it's not that you have just a casual, flippant relationship with the almighty, but you have an intimate relationship with a father And he knows everything about you, every struggle you're going through. He wants to be with you, and he is close to you. As close can be, his spirit is in you, producing a cry of intimacy and longing and love. Jesus died for me And in this instant of hearing some negative feedback about myself, Jesus died for me, and in this instant, he is interceding for me. 
I've experienced trauma in my life or pain in my life or failure or loss or betrayal. In these moments, I know I am loved, I am accepted, I am righteous. You moms here and dads, you probably have experienced this, where you have caught your child doing something wrong. Um, as a kid growing up, this was my, uh, often my experience. And uh, when a child is caught and their conscience is overwhelmed with guilt, and they're really busted with their hand in the cookie jar, um, and they've lost their creative lying ability, and they realize that they can't, they can't defend themselves, and they can't point to their little sister, and they're really, really caught. They grab hold of your leg, and there may be tears, and they're crying out, they're crying out, of course you will never abandon me. All I have for you, mommy, is the affection of my heart. I don't have works to show you that I love you. And now in a true, true Christian, there will be works that show we love Jesus. There's no doubt about that. But the cry of the heart, Abba, Father, is mostly related to our falling short of what the Father wants. And we cling to him because we have something that we know is from him. It's affection. We know we have the spirit of adoption in us, and we know we are his child, and we cling, and we do not have enough works to comfort our conscience, but we have what? Affection. Let me ask you. Are you sensing that affection? Are you sensing that in you? I want to love God. I want to love God. I want to, I want to respond to God. I may not be that good at it. I'm not even sure how to do it, but I, the desire is there. That's it. The desire is there. That's it. It, it might be on a scale of 1 to 10, the desire is like a 2, it, but it's there. And God, in the means of grace, prayer, preaching, the Lord's Supper, fellowship, Scripture, God, in these means of grace, is going to fuel that fire and passion and affection, you see. So, in the end, we have the cry of Abba, Father, as an expression of intimate affection for the Father. The Father delights in me. He's given me his spirit to live in me. Lord, I repent of my treadmill to prove I can earn it righteousness. I preach the gospel to myself. Believing the gospel enables me to act like a son. Now that's kind of on the world of the, the, the negative input from others. But again, I want to address now, what's the negative input that we give to ourselves? Because I wouldn't uh, be surprised that there are people here. You are polite. You're professional. 
You're competent, skilled, but brutally hard on yourself. You're hard on yourself. You do not practice self-compassion. You don't give yourself permission to rest. You don't give yourself permission to get off the treadmill. You should do more, be more. It may not come out very much. Maybe your spouse senses this. But you're saying to yourself, a good Christian shouldn't, a good Christian would never, or a good Christian ought to. And there's this, this huge list of oughts and shoulds, and you feel like you never are measuring up. I don't love others. I don't share the gospel. I don't even care about the poor like Jesus tells me to. A real Christian wouldn't. I'm angry. I'm unforgiving. I'm hurt. I gossip. I'm critical of others. I fantasize about romance or being loved. I'm a need bucket. You know, I just keep, I'm just this endless need bucket. There's this critical, critical look at ourselves. I feel so powerless. How long have I been a Christian and I still... Not all those things will apply to you. Perhaps one of those would. What about this? What do you do? Well, there's Christian self-help books. There's principles for living. The golden key to success and all these other... They're out there. You can try that. It's not the gospel. I think it'll lead to more fatigue and more, you know, it's it's just more exhaustion. The should, should be more, be more perfect world needs to be turned away from and you need to receive with open arms the gospel for you. How does the Apostle Paul address the shoulds and oughts of his life? One who was well acquainted with all the pharisaical rules of Judaism, He said, Galatians 2.20, I am, in my relationship to all the do's and all the oughts, I am crucified with Christ. That's where it all is met. All the obligations of what I should be, what I ought to be, all the personal standards that I put upon myself, all the standards of God, all this whole world of where I don't measure up, I am crucified with Christ. I'm free, 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 free. I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. Notice this. This is a complete departure from law-keeping and treadmill. I am crucified with Christ, and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is a living, dynamic, exciting real, intimate. I live by faith in a person. I have a redeemer in this tough situation. I have a redeemer in these uh, hard, depressing thoughts. I have a redeemer in this moment. I have a redeemer when it feels like my history is, going, is falling away from me and I can't access it anymore and the meaning of my life. I have a redeemer when the future doesn't seem bright. I have a, I have a redeemer in this moment. And I'd say for some of us, living in the moment is the most difficult thing we have going. Right now, in this moment, I have a redeemer. It's, like, it's, a good, it's good news, isn't it? It's good. 
That's my relationship to all that I should be, all that I, I, I couldn't be on my, even on my own standards. I am crucified with Christ. That's where God meets me with his law and my, his demand for my law-keeping. He meets me with the crucified Christ, deals with it there. It, the law now can no longer accuse me. And I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. This is, this is an adopted son talking here who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice the personal connection, the personal words he's using. Believing the gospel enables me to live like a son, not like an orphan. I hear their message from other people. I hear the message from myself. You know what? It's okay if there's some truth in it. I can repent. I can... Ask God to grow me and to change, that's fine. But often, in feeling this negative input, we are overwhelmed with it, and we believe that these feelings are actually defining what's real to us. Feelings are vitally important, but Scripture needs to speak to that world and tell us what God thinks of us. So, I hope this is helping. And let me get one more page here. I must consciously root myself in what God has said about me. So it is believing. It feels like we're a bit passive, and we are, but we're also active in our, in our mind, what we're believing and thinking, and rooting ourselves in what God says about us. Some of us are also under a lot of pressure for definitions of success, of what makes you okay. Seek to root yourself in the success of Jesus for you. Seek to root yourself in a, in a love that will uh, be there beyond whatever awards you get in this world or whatever achievements you have. Seek to root yourself in that, in that deeper love and for, for many of us, it is the interpretive way in which we are understanding our world. It's, it's the framework. So what am I working on? I'm working on the, my deep rootedness in my, in my childhood, in my teenage years. This is interesting. Like those, are, those are deeply comforting areas of my life, and they're also an interpretive grid for me. It's how I sort of interpret what love is. I'll, you know, love is, love is like my father. My father was very loving. You're not loving to me, therefore. In other words, it became the powerful grid by which I interpret things. What I need to do is to allow Scripture to give me a new interpretive grid, a new way to understand the role of people, and to receive the love of God for me, which even surpasses my own father's love. I need, I need a new interpretive grid. See. The problem with it is that we are not interpreting 
reality correctly. And what God gives us is not advice, not a plan, not the six keys to success. He gives you a redeemer in this moment right now. He gives you his son. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me. Now that that can move this way and that way into this marketplace, into this home and share the gospel. Paul is actively moving. I live by faith in the son of God, actively believing. Even the conversation you might have right after church. By faith, it's happening. By faith, God's given me this person to talk to. I'm living in the moment. I'm living in the moment. I'm not living in Rancho Cucamonga anymore. It's called freedom. Because places that are deeply intimate and personal to us, some city fathers decided to knock down. And they didn't care about me. They didn't care about me. And I've got this massive chip on my shoulder the rest of my life. I'm going to find those city fathers and tell them what I think. In other words, to live by faith in the Son of God means to live in the moment of freedom, of being loved, of, of, of moving in this love, of, being, of, of, of receiving this love. He gave himself for you. How much more uh, could there be given for us he gave himself for us. Some of us today, perhaps, for the first time, are thinking, wow, I can escape the grid. I can escape the grid that I've been thinking of. The, 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 maybe it's brought depression into your life, anxieties into your life. I'm escaping the grid by which I'm interpreting everything. It's causing me to be angry. It's causing me to be disappointed. It's causing me to not love. I can escape the grid, the interpretive pain of my life. Hope that, are, you, are you connecting with that concept? This is vitally important. If you take even the Saul of Tarsus, his interpretive, interpretive grid when he saw Christians, this is Saul of Tarsus who became the, the Apostle Paul, his interpretive, interpretive grid at that point when he wasn't a Christian was these people are a threat to everything that's valuable to me. They're a threat to my righteousness seeking. They're a threat. And he, and he sought to kill them. So to give, up your, to give up your interpretive grid <laughs> is, is a huge thing, by the way. And in the process, you might have to admit you're wrong to someone. And you'll be okay. I saw that wrong. I didn't understand that correctly. I believed the wrong thing about you. Welcome to the, the, the recovery that's called the Christian life. I just want you to be encouraged. You can escape the grid. And you are what you are, not because of the treadmill, but because of the grace of God. And I just want to encourage you. What we're doing is we're rehearsing what it means over and over, rehearsing what it means. You mean that's what it means to have a, a relationship with God as Father? That's what it looks like. Let's do it again next Sunday. Let's do it again in our small group. Let's do it again one-on-ones. Let's just rehearse it over and over. And please do not be embarrassed that you forget. Please do not be uh, prideful that you think, I can get all this in one Sunday. It's a lifetime of learning, and we need each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the delight of being